Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. What makes them industry giants? Get ready to take a peek inside and learn their secrets of success. This is Silicon Valley Insider, the show that demystifies the valley and helps to elevate your business to the next level. Now, your host for Silicon Valley Insider, Keith Koo. Welcome to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Koo. On today's show, I have Maya Bordeaux, who's the founder and managing partner of Attune, a persuasion marketing firm. On this week's tech news, breaking news is that Estee Lauder had exposed a database of 440 million records. Now, of course, in terms of wordsmithing, Estee Lauder spokesperson said no sensitive data was released, but that's just simply because the database didn't store sensitive data, but everything in it was actually exposed, including email addresses of company employees and actually audit logs and records from their IT department on everything that goes on inside their infrastructure. Next up is that many states are pressing the Fed to grant resources to fight cyber threats. The states believe that is a national – it isn't yeah. – I should do this one more time. Okay, I'm going to do it again. <laughs> Sorry. Welcome to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Koo. On today's show, I have Maya Bordeaux, who is the founder and managing partner of Attune, a consulting firm that does persuasion marketing. In breaking tech news, Estee Lauder announced that they had a data breach of 440 million records. Now, it's always in the wordsmithing. The spokesperson of Estee Lauder made it very clear that no sensitive data was released. However, what is clear is that all data in this database was available, and that would include email addresses of employees and IT logs of their infrastructure. So this is just something that I always remind companies about, that they need to secure all of their data, and they're the ones that are responsible for it. Next up is that states are really pressing federal authorities to grant more resources towards cyber threats. The state government officials, including in Michigan and Texas, told the U.S. Senate that they felt that the U.S. government should be designating more funding and research to help states combat hackers. Are you familiar with blockchain? Well, there was some jurisdictions testing out a blockchain voting app called Votes, V-O-A-T-Z. Now, security researchers said that it was very insecure and that they would not trust it for any real type of voting. Votes felt that that was unfair because the testing was done against the mobile device application and they claim that they had adequate security if that data was ever trying to transfer to their server. Uh, many conversations are continuing because um, the actual MIT researchers that discovered the flaw has not yet responded to how votes is defending their claims. If you're following the battle between Amazon and Microsoft to get a $10 billion Pentagon contract for their cloud business, and believe it or not, it's called JEDI for Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure Cloud Contract, Amazon has claimed that they lost this $10 billion contract because of relationships and animosity that President Trump has against them. So a court has basically said that they will allow more discussion between the government and these two companies before awarding the contract. 
In final tech news, there's been an ongoing court case between Oracle and Google for what's called the Java SE uh, platform. This is what the Android system is based off of. Java was originally developed by Sun Microsystems. Oracle acquired Sun. And what's at stake here is that Oracle is saying that even though Android was built off of it, that wasn't the intended use. Google and many other companies are claiming that if Oracle wins this case, then that will be a blow to uh, the type of technology economy where they're sharing between companies and even if they're rivals. There will be much more news about this because it's been a 10-year case, and that's the Tech News of the Week. Hey, welcome back to the show. Once again, I'm joined with Maya Bordeaux, who's the co-CEO of Attune, a persuasion marketing consulting firm. Welcome, Maya. Hi, Keith. I'm happy to be here. So what is persuasion marketing and what is Attune? So persuasion marketing is kind of a unique way to describe a a marketing company in the product marketing space. Um, And the reason why we think of ourselves that way is um, the typical kind of marketing approach is you're almost injecting meaning into a blank slate that's someone's mind. And you're assuming that they don't have like an immune system response to your message, which is usually the case because nobody actually wants to listen to marketers. We're bombarded by 5,000 ads a day. So, um, you know, why, why would I pay attention to such an intrusive presence in my life? So in other words, we're, we're trying to work around someone's immune system response to marketing. We're trying to work around people's belief systems and frames about something. And unfortunately, those belief systems and frames are so deeply held, they're completely subconscious, mm-hmm. that they're really hard to access. So what ends up happening in, in most marketing um, uh, messaging is people will end up simply saying, okay, forget it. I kind of have an idea of what they object to, but I'm just going to brute force kind of say, this is what I stand for. And whoever loves me, loves me. That's great. But I'm not here to necessarily change minds. So our approach is a little different. And you could call it persuasion marketing, mainly because our approach is about understanding the deep frame someone has and how to shift them. It's fascinating you say that because um, Guardian Insight Group, which is my consulting firm, uh, we help companies negotiate, which is interesting. That's not so much marketing, but that's, there's a lot of human behavior in that. And then we also help a lot of startups. And oftentimes we get startups who, um, you know, I won't say what region, but it's funny because uh, when you learn uh, international relations, we find out that the United States is considered to be a very direct and blunt culture for business. And there's a couple of countries that are even more uh, blunt or direct than we are. So one of them, which I'm not naming, but if they're listening, they know who I'm talking about. Germany? I, I'm not. It's not Germany. <laughs> and I'm not going to say it on the air because I'm trying to be PC. We could talk about it uh, during the break. But really, they have sometimes they have this great technical talent, deep technical talent. Sometimes they have this uh, concept of marketing that is, well, if my customers don't understand my product, then they're just too dumb to use it. Yeah, and, that, and that happens a lot. And so they're losing sight of what's really important, which is really winning the hearts and minds of the customer. Absolutely. And that that's that I find really interesting in the context of Silicon Valley and tech, because um, we've done some work in that world. And what's it's it's very different from product marketing in the sense that it's almost like people believe that um, at least people who are designing these products almost believe that they're looking at at a 
uh, bird's eye view on top of an ant farm. You know, there's like their users are just these scurrying ants. And as long as they can track where they go and their behaviors, uh, they'll be able to give the ants something that they like. Um, And often the human component is left out. So you end up with um, people really focused on functionality and whether, you know, does this stop the ants? Do do they all get confused and lose the trail or not? Um, Versus really getting into people's minds and um, differentiating in that way. I think the reason for that, this is just, you know, my layman's opinion, but I believe that tech is going through something similar as uh, you know, basic household products and um, any any kind of physical consumer product went through. Uh, it used to be that you'd compete just based on functionality, mm-hmm. right? You're like your toilet plumber actually works. <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah, so you're 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 ready to go. Uh, you know, great. Uh, it didn't matter what it looked like. It didn't matter if it was a pleasure to use. You know, it was just it worked. And you could differentiate yourself because you just simply created a better, more like hefty, sturdy, useful tool. But what ended up happening is that the technology or the production was so became so ubiquitous that you ended up having to differentiate in other ways. So design thinking starts to come mm-hmm. in, and all of a sudden, it it matters, you know, at Target what something looks like or whether it's a pleasure to use. And so I think this is just my my hypothesis. But in tech, I think what's going to end up happening is people will eventually start to see function as a pay to play. And they'll need a design thinking element that actually gets into people's heads. It's a great point you're making. Uh, when I was at Intuit, TurboTax, and QuickBooks, although in some cases it's a pseudo monopoly because once you use it, you use it. Um, all directors and above are taught design thinking, and in the beginning, we were actually taught directly by Eric Reese. Wow! And so the the, the author of the Lean Startup, um, design thinking isn't everything that we do, whether we are conscious of that or not. And uh, depending on, you know, there's lots of different design thinking methodologies and philosophies, but you're absolutely right that, um, especially with uh, cliche, but moving into software as a service of the cloud, um, and uh, even traditional engineering mindsets have to redesign for that because you don't have a traditional, there's an IT shop and you go to them with your requirements and then you produce. You're actually competing against uh, internal IT resources because now as a chief marketing officer, I can just go straight to the cloud. So Maya, um, there's a lot we want to cover. We want to get your best practices on uh, how people can be persuasive in their marketing. So I'm glad you're here today. Absolutely. Once again, you're listening to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. And once again, in studio, I have a very special guest, Maya Bordeaux, who's the co-CEO of Attune, a persuasion marketing consulting firm. If you'd like to learn more about Maya and Attune Partners, email us at info at svn.biz. You can always find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and we'll be right back with more of Maya. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Hey, Insiders. Welcome back to the show. Once again, I'm joined with Maya Bordeaux, who is the co-CEO of Attune, and they really help companies with persuasion marketing. Maya, in your research, why is the subconscious such an important part or element of marketing? 
So, you know, first of all, it sounds really scary, right? People say subconscious marketing and they and they think of like manipulation, they think of subliminal, they think of all kinds of things that um, aren't necessarily, well, really aren't part of what we do. We don't do subliminal advertising, for example. But what's what's interesting about the subconscious is it's about it's about understanding what really drives somebody's behavior. So in other words, if you go and do more rational methods of research, you might do a focus group where people are, you know, um, influencing each other during the group because they're together. And you might do a poll where you come up with the questions and people answer that on a scale of some kind. Um, When you do that type of rational work, you're going to get what people think they know. But you're not going to get what they themselves don't even realize they know. And why is that important? Because that's what actually drives behavior. So, for example, um, if you look at the subconscious, 95% of our decision-making is actually subconscious. Mm -hmm. So we think of ourselves as these, like, rational creatures that, you know, uh, choose things. Like, I chose to buy this particular house because I made a spreadsheet and I looked at the neighborhood prices and all of that. But what's interesting is actually that that uh, decision was made almost entirely subconsciously. And our consciousness is more like veto power on the top. And it's able to say yes, no to all this information that's being processed down below. So when we do research into the subconscious, our goal is to figure out what are those associations, those frames underneath the surface that will impact whether someone's resistant to our message or whether it's actually going to just automatically uh, connect. And um, and when you think about how, how why that's important, it's not it's not any nefarious thing. Like you think about Martin Luther King, right? He was an amazing subconscious communicator. Hmm. He instinctively understood the frames in people's minds of their aspirations, white, black, brown, whatever, and he would basically evoke those frames in his speeches. Now, subconscious marketing is all about visual frames. So you're understanding what does someone see in their mind's eye for a topic before it gets edited and explained by words. Well, thank you. This is a really interesting point in talking about the subconscious. Uh, We talk a lot about on our show in relation to artificial intelligence about confirmation biases that humans absolutely have and that even developers unknowingly program into their models. And that's why uh, data sets are really important, having data sets that can eliminate biases. I just talked to um, a Series B-funded company this week, and they were saying that was the number one thing. They're a data processing company. They said that's one of the number one things they have to solve for is making sure that the models don't have biases. So that's confirmation bias. Uh, and you know, just interpreting our discussion about subconsciousness, uh, are you... Thinking more from subconsciousness of the seller or the buyer? Oh, so both. And that's that's an amazing point, Keith, because it's what's interesting is often our clients, they will have their own subconscious biases about what their brand means, what their product means, but they don't even realize it. And if they've been there a long time and talked to a lot of consumers or users, they eventually kind of Um, subconsciously learn what the frames are on the other side, but none of it comes to consciousness and can be actually evaluated, processed, and thought through strategically. It's all underneath the surface. Um, So one way, (laughs) there's a really funny um, story about explaining subconscious learning. So it's called, have you ever heard of chicken sexers? 
No. <laughs> I haven't. So, chicken sex is, So this proves that words are not the thought, right? Because whatever random image came into your mind is the thought. The words are meaningless unless you have some activation inside. But basically, chicken sexers are people at chicken processing plants. And by the way, shout out to all the animal rights people out there. I do not mean to endorse this. But what they do is they stand by this like almost like moving walkway type thing of chicks, like little baby chicks. Okay. And there's no like easy way to see if a chick is male or female. But there's people who are learning, who are kind of processing them into male and female groups because the females are going to go on to lay eggs. So how does somebody learn to do this? If somebody comes up and asks them, they can't tell you how they know. But if somebody watches them and tries to do it and keeps watching them, they'll eventually learn how. But Mm. they themselves don't know how they know. So subconscious learning happens all the time. And it's it's why, you know, on an exam, let's say, you might stop at a, a certain question and you, know, you, you have this question that's really, really kind of um, uh, bothering you. you. You just cannot figure out that question. Exam Professional exam takers will tell you, move on to the next question, because while you're doing on the next one, your subconscious will give you the answer to the first one. So your subconscious is working in parallel very hard with a very high processing speed and our goal as as you know uh, uh, this type of agency is to help our clients bring to the surface to consciousness what their biases what their frames are to bring to the consciousness what their targets frame is and then figure out how to sync them so uh, just one follow up on the chicken sexers <laughs> and i get it uh, it sounds like definitely uh, a challenge that artificial intelligence can solve for <laughs> Um, one of my favorite companies I'm working with, uh, they just did a volumetric scan of, um, of, uh, a supplier sawdust for activated charcoal. And, um, really the, the thing there is that it's still rough estimates by humans and they were wildly off on the estimate. And so they needed an automated way of figuring that out. So I'm sure not to put any, so you're, you're, uh, not wanting to set off animal rights activists. I don't want to set off, uh, chicken sexers that this is their profession, but I'm sure this is something that could be solved <laughs> through automation. You know, I have a theory that um, AI is basically a giant subconscious machine, supercomputer. Like that's where we're trying to get is that we are able to outsource some of the processing of our subconscious to a supercomputer that will just elevate our abilities to, to process lots of information. Oh, I, I mean, this is, again, we don't have time today, but we could go on for um, hours and hours on this topic about what AI represents. And so... I think back to the subconscious and dealing with your clients, because you have a difficult job. You you have to help somebody. It's almost like therapy. Somebody's going to hire you to tell them what is you know wrong with their baby, and then and then how do you implement those changes? <laughs> so, so I guess you know it. It um, people usually come to us when. Um, they're, they've tried everything else. Okay. Um, once we build trust with clients, they come back for us to us first. But um, our typical first-time clients are people who have tried traditional research, people who have tried uh, more typical brand strategy groups. There's nothing wrong with those. They do an excellent job, but they just need an, an extra something. So, for example, um, you know, if you're working with, um, trying to think of a really prosaic example, um, let's say we're working with a bleach company um, and, you know, they're just trying to understand, is there any other 
innovation vectors for bleach, which seems like such a prosaic topic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'd be brought in where they'd done like a thousand one-on-ones, a thousand ethnographies, a thousand polls and quant research, and they could not for the life of them find another vector. Um, so th- that's, you know, they're they're coming in with an open mindset to, to really change and learn at that point. And um, they're ready to try something really different in you. Well, Maya, it's really great to have you. Uh, once again, you're listening to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo, joined with Maya Bordeaux, who's the co-CEO of Attune. And we're talking all about persuasion marketing. Um, in the next segment, we want to get into some of the use cases and some of the uh, tips and tricks of the trade. So don't go away. If you have any questions or comments, email us at info at Find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And also, if you want more information on how to get a hold of Maya directly. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Koo. On today's show, I have Maya Bordeaux, the founder and managing partner of Attune, a persuasion marketing firm. On this week's cyber tip, I want to talk about a term called juice jacking. And juice jacking is probably something that you might not have heard the term, but you're definitely familiar with. So let's say you're at an airport and your phone is running out of juice. You will probably go up to one of the free kiosks and start charging your phone. Well, one of the latest hacking methods, because you don't know what's behind that cord, is where hackers are putting in malware at the base of those devices. So think about like credit card skimmers at a gasoline pump. Well, this is kind of the analogy to that. And I'm going to be talking much more about this in a future show just to make sure you're very, very prepared for this. But as always, juice jacking is when you go to charge your phone with an unfamiliar source and you're not realizing that you're putting your phone at risk. Uh, there are stories where bank account numbers, text messages, anything that goes on in your phone can be stolen. So just be very aware that the next time you need to recharge your phone, that you're sure of what the charging device is. And that's the Cyber Tip of the Week. Welcome back to the show. Once again, I'm joined with Maya Bordeaux, who's the co-CEO of Attune. And we've been talking a lot today about marketing, but more specifically, persuasion marketing. So welcome back, Maya. Thank you, Keith. So Maya, let's get into some of uh, your direct stories and some of the things that you've seen in your work and how that really makes very engaging content for marketing. Absolutely. So one would be, I mean, the core of what we do is framing. So um, we're looking, understanding someone's subconscious frame, our subconscious frame, and how do we connect those. Um, And the problem with the people's subconscious frames is often they're resistant to our message. So a a really easy example is an agency I respect in China was telling me about um, a case study where somebody in Britain, who is a kind of like a Home Depot type store, was moving into China. And they were trying to figure out how to position themselves as inexpensive because people automatically think, well, they're British, you know, or they're foreign. They must be expensive. Um, so they put out a campaign, you know, like this this chair, only this price, uh, this uh, mm-hmm. flashlight, only this price, expecting that, you know, everybody would think, wow, this is actually quite expensive. What a revelation. The truth has set us free. Now, that's not what happened. When they did that campaign, the impression that they were expensive went up. 
it didn't even stay the same. And the reason for that is people would see the ad and their own subconscious frame that, you know, foreign is expensive would get activated and they would say, oh, that's a foreign company coming into China. Well, they must be expensive. Oh, how interesting. They have a commercial trying to convince me that they're not expensive. But of course, that just reminds me that they must be expensive. And so it shows how just injecting meaning into someone's head can backfire. On the other hand, what if you tried something like this? You know, you have a campaign that says, let's reframe around a premium value. So in other words, you know, gift giving culture in China is huge. You can't risk giving a gift that's going to break, especially to a boss or, you know, you don't want to risk losing face. So if you're going to buy a gift that's something more like a home goods, you should probably go to a European store <laughs> instead of a local Chinese store. Now, the sad thing is all the goods are made in the same Chinese factories. <laughs> so, so, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, you end up having to play on quality of your goods, even if that's not your biggest strong point. And you end up saying, look, um, come in. We do have good quality stuff. Um, and people are like, oh, great. I'll buy that for a gift. And when they're doing that, they notice, oh, the light bulbs are actually quite cheap. And that's how you start to shift frames. This is, this is fascinating. I'm going to tell you two stories just because it came to my head. Um, one story is uh, my wife's brother-in-law, he and his friends, Chinese Americans, but they were doing business in China. In the late 90s, they started bringing leather office chairs into the US. And it's the exact same chair, but one was sold, I think at Fry's, and the other one was sold at Staples. And I mean, very minor cosmetic difference, but the price differential between Fry's, which is considered, for those that know Fry's, a uh, tech store that is known for low cost goods, versus Staples, it was like a hundred dollar difference. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean like basically a fifty dollar leather office chair versus a hundred and fifty dollar leather office chair. Yes. So, so. <laughs> yes. No, because and, and it's so hard because, you know, there's companies and the only companies we work with are very um, you know, ethical companies. They do insane research on their products and they know the truth that their products are superior and they strive for superiority. So Procter and Gamble is one of them. Their products are amazing. So and I love selling their products. The problem is though, people don't always believe the truth that they're putting out there. For example, you know, let's say you have a toothpaste like um, Crespro Health that has a different type of fluoride. It's stannous fluoride. It's not um, the typical sodium fluoride. And it comes with a huge number of benefits. Um, but if you tell people it's much better and it has a huge number of benefits, they look at you and say, oh, fluoride is fluoride. You know, and I, do I really care what fluoride is? So, so they're not actually using the correct information to figure out what is the best toothpaste for mm -hmm. them. So what do you do in that scenario, right? So we were coming up with all kinds of ideas, like maybe we come up with a scale because the toothpaste, um, you know, aisle is so confusing with so many subsets. What if you just had something that was like a scale on cleansing, like how much it cleans, how much it protects and all of their different sublines, you see a literally like a, you know, like on St. Ives scrub, it'll tell you it's like soft or like strong or whatever, but not, nothing's bad. Like either you're doing more like um, advanced protection or you're doing more basic protection, et cetera. Um, and those are the types of things that work. But unfortunately, the truth is not often what sets people free, even though you know you're, you're telling them the truth, which is this is a better product. And why is that? It's because facts just bounce off. So 80% of the time, 
people keep believing what they originally believed and contradictory facts just bounce off. And if there's a resistant frame, that can get come closer to 100%. So, so people don't, don't um, facts, facts, unfortunately, take effort to encode. So otherwise, we wouldn't have to study for exams, right? It would just like, you wouldn't be able to unsee a fact, you just look at it and be like, oh, yes, I intuitively know it and, or see it and I can go into the exam. But but imagery and framing is and stories are the building blocks of our brain's thought. So those you can't unsee or unhear. It's stored away somewhere and your subconscious is processing it whether you like it or not. So if I f- come first with a fact, somebody who has their immune system defenses up against marketing is easily able to reject my fact. Do, do you know this since we were on a, a topic of uh, companies in China? Do you know the story of BMW in China? No, and that's because they don't have a story. So I think I think it's I think <laughs> it's a trick question. Well, no, no. I mean, I th- this is I just want to know about. I think it was between ten and fifteen years ago. This is before Tesla, because Tesla's all the rage. Mm. Um, BMW was trying to make it inroads into China, and back to facts, not whether they're a bad car company or a good car company. They were uh, the victim of a circumstance. So I think there was a couple of well-known um, incidents where. A child of a government official, an adult child, basically ran over some people, ran over somebody. It was it was when videos knew, it went viral, and people started having a negative connotation with BMW. And the more BMW tried to fix this image, the worse it got. And so, again, before Tesla, because Tesla's all the rage right now in China, Audi made inroads into China. And they benefited from this hardwired perception by, uh, you know, a burgeoning upper middle class that we can't do a BMW because the BMW is very uh, associated with very bad events. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. I'll send you that story later, but yeah, it was in the last 10 years. It was was fascinating because in the Western world and and people who've listened to me for the last, you know, three years, they know I'm Chinese American (laughs) In the Western world, BMW is a symbol of, you know, status in Europe, if you talk about a Mercedes versus a BMW, a Mercedes is a taxi, BMW is the ultra driving machine, but it did not do well in China. See, that's fascinating. And that's that's where it's really important to understand each segment's frame that you're targeting because, you know, some and it depends on the topic. So some topics are universal and you can you could talk to people in America and safely say that 80 percent of the frames will be similar in another country, such as motherhood. Okay, it's such a basic hardwire frame or your teeth, believe it or not, basic hardwire frame. But things like, you know, BMW, like brand uh, kind of brand story or things like, I don't know, diamonds. You know, in, in China, they didn't give diamonds till recently. It was all jade. So, oh, yeah. right. So if you had interviewed 50 years ago, people in China about diamonds versus the U.S., they'd have a completely different frame and resistance. So so you have to know um, how universal is your topic? And then also, um, if it's not universal, what are the biggest different frames? One, one final example, because now we're in this role. Uh, before smartphones, right when the iPhone was coming out, and um, you know, Motorola missed the boat because they, they thought smartphones was going to be a passing fad. Some company in China was able to clone the final you know, Motorola analog phone, and they produced it before Motorola did. And I think it was Motorola, not Samsung. And so what happened is the phone had like a 90-day, six-month head start on this Motorola analog phone. 
And that phone became viral and every Chinese person was buying it. So when the real Motorola phone was launched, everybody thought the real one was fake and the fake one was real. No. Yep. What? And it, that's like, that gives a whole new meaning to first mover advantage. <laughs> so, so Maya, we're, we're coming uh, right before the next break where we're going to do the pivot. Uh, we want to hear more about your best practices and tips, which we'll send straight to our podcast. So you're going to have to download that to find out what Maya's best practices are. But I'm really happy to have had you. We'll definitely have you back. So Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo, joined with very special guest, Maya Bordeaux, who is the co-CEO of Attune, a company that leads in persuasion marketing for all different industries. You want to get a hold of Maya, um, you can email us at info.svn.biz. We'll be sure to refer you to Maya, or you can go to our Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook sites, and we'll be right back. Thank you, Keith. For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Hey, Insiders. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. Once again, joined with Maya Bordeaux, who is the co-CEO of Attune, which we've been really having a fascinating conversation. So welcome back, Maya. Thank you. So Attune is all about marketing, but it's specifically persuasion marketing. And we had all kinds of really great dialogue during the break. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up, Maya, was we talk a lot about emotions and things that drive engagement. What happens when it's a company, because you, you talked about some of the large corporations you work with, when there's actual hard dollars at stake? Oh, yeah. This is, so this is a very good example of rational versus emotional is that when it goes down to the, to the line, people are like, well, in business, we talk numbers, we talk money. So, you know, Maya, you're coming to me and saying, oh, yeah, I just come up with some emotional, flimsy, flimsy message. And, you know, the, the, the people, my CEO is going to be like, oh, moved by it and decide to shift his frame. Hells no. I mean, I, you know, I'm a branch manager of a bank. I put out a, a, a beautiful ad about kids on a bike learning from their dad and nobody storms a branch but I you know say free iPad and all of a sudden like everybody in the neighborhood is in there signing up for an account so don't tell me rational doesn't matter uh, the numbers are what really move things well I would say that what's really important is to get an emotional message that makes your target whoever that is even if they're numbers minded emotional that's what's really critical and someone riding a bike may not be it so, for example, talking to a CEO, trying to convince them to shift their business policy with a non-finance argument. How do you do that? Um, there was an example of a, a company I deeply respect. I won't name because I want to keep it confidential for them. But they um, were doing some of this type of image-based subconscious work. They were trying to work for pharmaceutical companies who wanted to understand um, how do people view us? And up to this point, that company hadn't made huge strides in terms of changing their policy to accommodate people who had been contacting them in polls saying, nine out of 10, I'm angry at you, 10 out of 10. You know, the numbers were clear that there was a big problem. But then when you do research, we ask someone in their mind's eye, what is it like to face high drug prices? And you have a woman describing, in my head, I see myself in my dream house that has taken 50 years of hard work 
for me and my husband to save up and build. And I see this pharmaceutical company because of their insane cancer drug prices for my husband. It's a vice that's on my house, slowly crushing it with me inside. And I'm screaming for help. Just somebody help me. And I'm throwing money out the window. And this money is falling into a trough where pharmaceutical executives are fat pigs dressed in business suits, eating from the trough of the money I'm throwing at them and not even looking up to see me being crushed in my own house. Now, when you present that visual to a pharma exec, you spark an emotional reaction. Mm -hmm. In that room, I can't describe people who are used to working numbers, numbers, numbers every day. How do we advance the business growth started to get emotional? There was tears. There was anger. There was disbelief. But that's what how you spark change. And they ended up creating an incredible program to provide drugs at free or at low cost to people of a certain income level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's powerful because you hear about all the stories. I think it was um, EpiPen, right? And people realized how much more market it was and, you know, whether it was moral, immoral. I mean, we're not making a judgment call, but that was something that was in the public domain and sparked a huge discussion. Or there was the the talk about the woman who had a snake bite and um, it cost her, I think, uh with the 80% discount, it still cost her like $10,000. So these pills were like $20,000 a piece. And so she had to pay like $2,000 or $4,000. But that you can get it in Mexico for like 100 bucks, right? I mean, those are the kinds of things I think the public gets angry about. And pharmaceutical companies, uh, because they're large, it, just like banks and other large companies, they have to really think about how their the image perception is, even if they're considered a monopoly. And I think that's where... Uh, bringing in firms like Attune is important. Yes. In fact, I would say subconscious messaging and research is only not impactful on psychopaths, which happen to be a very small slice of the population. The rest of us feel emotions, and, uh, and it absolutely, when the message is right for our frame, it will absolutely spark a reaction. And I'm happy to also, Keith, tell you how to avoid dating a psychopath because I used to study them. <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna, That's a different show. Happy to do that, but that, that's a whole different show. And uh, so, Maya, with just the short amount of time we have left on uh, today's show, and I do want to remind people that Maya will be giving uh, some tips that are not included in the show, so go to svn.biz to download them when we start publishing it. What do you want to impart? Let, let's say you're a technology startup. And again, we deal with a ton of technology starts trying to scale, they're stuck, and they come to us for help. What's some advice for them? So my advice is to slow down before you speed up. I know that we're in this stage right now of fail fast, fail cheap, and I could not agree more. Once you get to the implementation phase, yes, break things, move fast, fail fast, fail cheap, but not before you have that foundational knowledge. And what's interesting is when you slow down to speed up, your first designs, while you're still kind of throwing spaghetti at a wall, it's a much narrower band and you're much more likely to succeed. Great advice. So once again, Maya Bordeaux, co-CEO of Attune, has been with us today. If you have any questions or comments about how to get a hold of Maya and her team, email us at info Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And if your company is stuck, give us a call. So thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. 
For questions or comments on today's program or to schedule a complimentary consultation with Keith about your business, call 1-888-828-SVIN. That's 1-888-828-7846. 888-828-SVIN. 